have to say, to use the word introduce seems a little weird. Uh, since Dr. Hogan, we say, is well known to us, but you know, I thought back to the beginning when you first came and I thought, I don't remember that we ever actually introduced Dr. Hogan. You know, it's just he was the director in of Paul VI. And so he's here for us. And so I thought it might be nice to just have an idea of the stature and caliber of this person who was so um, with us on all those Saturdays and is now our next door neighbor over at the seminary. So I just have a couple of points that I think it's just um, worthwhile for you to appreciate. Ed has a PhD in systematic theology from Boston College, and he specialized in the relationship between theology and science, which is quite a way to dialogue with the world of today, you know? So therefore, Ed was closely involved in seeking a grant for the study of the relationship between theology and science, and the seminary was successful and received a $75,000 grant from the American Association for the Advancement of Science that does this integration into seminary curriculum. How great our future pastors, you know, that would see the way to dialogue with the world. Ed previously served, as you know, um, for the Archdiocese as director of the Pontifical Paul VI Institute of Catechetical and Pastoral Studies. And he also served under then our under then Bishop Carlson in the Diocese of Saginaw, which is my mother house's diocese in Saginaw, Michigan. And he was director of deacon formation, director of center for ministry, and the director of the department of formation in Saginaw. All of that just before Ed came here. In the last two years, Ed has been involved with the writing of Hope and Holiness, pastoral care for those with same-sex attraction, and the coordination of a resource day on transgender issues for about 200 Catholic educators here in the Archdiocese. And the member of the Mission Advisory Council of the Institute for Priestly Formation that we often hear referred to as IPF, a national program of spiritual formation for diocesan seminarians. He has a wife. They have been married for 26 years, and they have six children. And they're members of St. John Paul II Parish in South County. All of that background uh, for one who I don't in a way need to introduce to you, but yet with great pleasure I do and with deep gratitude I present to you again, Dr. Edwin. Thank you, Sister Mary Kathleen. Delightful to be with you all again. Um, that, that was interesting to hear. I just think of myself as Ed and ask you to do the same. Hi, team. I'm back. Nice to be together. Thank you. I want you to think about Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. How many times does he appear? Uh, you guys got to be better Bible thumpers. Once, twice, thank you Karen Weber, yes, thank you Darren. Three times he appears in the Gospel of John. What happens each time? This is the next step. What's the, what's the narrative arc of Nicodemus' story that the evangelist is presenting to us for our contemplation? Nicodemus first shows up in chapter 3. He's interested in this Jesus character and he comes to him in the dark. 
Because he doesn't want anybody to know that he's coming to see Jesus. Jesus talks to him about being born again from above. And if you remember, Nicodemus doesn't get it. Well, I'm supposed to re-enter my mother's womb? And Jesus says, no, no, that's not quite what I mean. But Nicodemus leaves confused. He came in the dark and he leaves in the dark, physically, psychologically, and spiritually. But Nicodemus shows up again in chapter 7. And what's happening in chapter 7 is the leaders are trying to arrest Jesus. Nicodemus reminds his colleagues about the requirements of the law. He asks a very simple but pointed question. Does our law condemn a person before it first hears him and finds out what he is doing? Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's not exactly discipleship. (laughs) But it's progress. It's imperfect progress. It is, in its own way, a defense of Jesus. Nicodemus has made imperfect progress. And that's good. In chapter 19, Nicodemus comes to anoint the body of Jesus after his death. Nicodemus publicly identifies himself as a close associate of a criminal who was just executed for being dangerous to the Jews and to the Romans. Nicodemus, without saying a word, is indicating that he's all in. That is discipleship. Well, what I want you to think about is that John records this narrative arc for our instruction. Not just each individual story, but the lot of them together. The story of Nicodemus is paradigmatic. It's a story of progressive illumination and growing faith. Nicodemus suffers the process of growth. Do we? Are we as deliberate as we might be in suffering the process of growth in ourselves? Are we as deliberate as we might be in accompanying the process of growth in others? Have we thought deeply about how God suffers and accompanies the process of growth in his people, all throughout salvation history and every day. Think of a time when you have experienced gradual development, maybe in this program, maybe elsewhere. Where did you start? Where did you end? And what was the process like? I'm very keenly aware as I come back today that you are not where you were when I left a year and a half ago. This group is in a very different place. Remember the whole slide about the pants being too short? You have grown again, and it is palpable in the room. Think of a time when you've helped someone else go through development. Maybe a child... Maybe a friend, maybe a parent, maybe a coworker, 
maybe a brother or sister, where did they start? Where did they end? And what was the process like? There will be many individual points today, but the three fundamental questions I want us to ponder are these. One, how has God shaped history gradually? And we'll give many examples of it. Two, how has God shaped each of us gradually? And that is something only you know, although I hope we'll talk about it today. Third, how is God calling us to help him shape others gradually? And this is where history and your own experience turns into ministry. This guy, I think, has an important template. The template is all over his works. I'm going to illustrate it today using the document Amoris Laetitia because I think it's clearest there. But once you grasp it, you can see it all over his writings, all over his homilies, all over his speeches, and all over his actions. My central point today is this. Pope Francis's core technique is something I call the discipleship roadmap. How many have ever heard of the discipleship roadmap? One, two, three. Usually it's only focus missionaries. By the way, those young people we prayed for at the University of Notre Dame, they're focus missionaries. They've not only heard this, they're trained to use it. We all need to be trained in how to use this. The Holy Father himself says in Amoris Laetitia, the dialogue that took place during the Synod raised the need for new pastoral methods. Paragraph 199. Well, the discipleship roadmap is a pastoral method. It's not a theological doctrine. I contend it's the central feature of his pastoral method and the most misunderstood point of his pontificate. And also a missed feature of the Gospels. And a forgotten point of salvation history. And an explicit topic in the Catechism. And a tremendous benefit for pastoral ministry if you learn to use it correctly but it can be used incorrectly. The more I've learned what it is and how to use it, the more skillful and the more serene I've become in handling challenging situations. Let me clarify, Pope Francis does not use this language of the discipleship roadmap. He tends to call it accompaniment. But the question comes up, When he says accompaniment, what exactly does he mean? Well, I think he means exactly something very precise. And the key to that something very precise is in this document. And in all the furor over the document, most people missed its central point. It's really helpful for ministry if you use it correctly, 
which we're still learning to do. And in fact, so is the Pope himself still learning how to use it just so. So I want to look at these four things today. One, what the discipleship roadmap is. Two, how it shows up in the document itself. Three, what it means for pastoral ministry. And four, how it's deeply rooted in the theological tradition. So this is really the first slide for today. What is the discipleship roadmap? Its central feature is a threefold scheme. On the simplest level, you have three things. A goal. Here's your goal. A situation. Here's your situation. And a path from the situation to the goal. That's not very complicated, is it? And yet we've managed to muddle it in the United States. Let's see if we can get it right today. Just expanding on that a little bit, the goal is characterized by its fullness. The situation is characterized by its messiness and complexity. Whatever the situation is, it's not there at the goal. And the path is characterized by its gradualness. It's not a one and done, on and off kind of deal. It's a slow process. It takes place in stages. Let me give you just one example of each of those points, the goal, the situation, and the path from Amoris Laetitia. And then we'll unpack it more slowly throughout the day. I've given you the handout, and the handout is the green sheet. So you can get that out at this point. Part of the purpose of the handout is to help you follow along. Part of the purpose of the handout is to show you that I am not making this up. That is to say, it's easy to take a document and cherry pick the quotations that you like from that document and wrap the document around your preferred framework. Well, what I'm showing you by giving you four full pages of quotations is that this is written all over the document. And these aren't even all the quotations I could have given you. I just thought we should keep it to a reasonable number. I was accused once of making things up. So I won't be going there. Let's start with the goal. If you look at the quotation from paragraph 22, it's a good example of how the goal shows up. The word of God is not a series of abstract ideas, but rather a source of comfort and companionship for every family that experiences difficulties or suffering. For it shows them the goal of their journey. There it is. I'm not even making up the language. He talks about what is the goal of family life. In every instance, and we'll come back to some of these, the goal is characterized by its fullness, its completeness. Sometimes he speaks of the full meaning of human existence, the fullness of the gospel, the deepest truth about humanity. We'll come back to that in the next talk. 
Let's look under the situation at paragraphs 31 and 32. The Holy Father says, I will not attempt here to present all that might be said about the family today. Nonetheless, because the Synod Fathers examined the situation of families worldwide, I consider it fitting to take up some of their pastoral insights, along with concerns derived from my own experience. Faithful to Christ's teaching, we look to the reality of the family today in all its complexity, with both its lights and shadows. There it is. He uses the language of situation, complexity, light and shadow. The situation in every instance is characterized by its messiness or complexity. The document is always clear on the fullness of the goal and the messiness of the situation. It never loses sight of either of those. Accompaniment always keeps an eye on both of those points and more. But even that's not enough. We'll come back to that. Let's look at the path. Paragraph 76. The gospel of the family also nourishes seeds that are still waiting to grow and serves as the basis of caring for those plants that are wilting and must not be neglected. Think of the people you interact with in the parish as seeds waiting to grow and plants that are wilting and must not be neglected. Do you know people who fit those descriptions? I do. I'm one of them. We're all seeds waiting to grow. Everybody's wilting in different ways, sometimes more and sometimes less. Thus, building on the gift of Christ in the sacrament, married couples may be led patiently further on in order to achieve a deeper grasp and a fuller integration of this mystery in their lives. And that's not only true of married couples, that's true of every individual who needs to be led patiently further on into the mystery of Christ dwelling in their life. And you've got to be patient with that process. The path in every instance is characterized by its gradualness. By the way, the question comes up, where is he getting this idea? Well, here's where he's getting this idea. Go back to that paragraph 76. And the closing quotation may be led patiently further on in order to achieve a deeper grasp and fuller integration of the mystery. That's a quote from John Paul II. That's a quote from Familiaris Consortio, which is the last papal document on the family. Here at greater length is what John Paul II said in Familiaris Consortio, paragraph 9. What is needed... John Paul II was saying in 1981, what is needed is a continuous, permanent conversion, which, while requiring an interior detachment from every evil, that means perfect contrition, the goal in its fullness, and an adherence to good in its fullness, that's the language of John Paul II, is brought about concretely in steps which lead us ever forward. There's the gradualness. Thus, a dynamic process develops. 
one which advances gradually with the progressive integration of the gifts of God and the demands of his definitive and absolute love in the entire personal and social life of man. There it is. Here's the goal. Here's the situation. We need a gradual process that fully integrates that goal into our lives. Therefore, an educational growth process is necessary in order that individual believers, families, peoples, even civilization itself, by beginning from what they have already received of the mystery of Christ, may patiently be led forward, arriving at a richer understanding and a fuller integration of this mystery in their lives. There it is. Everything that Pope Francis is saying in the Discipleship Roadmap was actually said by John Paul II in Familiaris Consortio. And apparently we missed it. By the way, light and shadow, chiaroscuro, the interplay of light and darkness, that's a major theme of Amoris Laetitia. Familiaris Consortio in 1981 and Casti Canubii, the last Vatican document on the family from 1931. I teach a whole course about that. So there's more to be discovered. But Casti Canubi is set up in terms of what is the truth about marriage? What are the sins against marriage being committed in 1931? And what are the remedies for those sins? Here's the goal. Here's the situation. Here's the path to cure it. 1931, it was all there. Lastly, an example of all three of these together under pastoral care. Situation, path, and goal all at once. Let's look at paragraph 60. The Synod Fathers began with the gaze of Jesus and spoke of how he looked upon the women and men whom he met with love and tenderness, accompanying their steps in truth, patience, and mercy as he proclaimed the demands of the kingdom of God. There are three key words in that quotation. Met, accompanied, proclaimed. There's his method, and in fact, in order. Met, accompanied, proclaimed. We'll come back to that and unpack it even more. Now, I want to pause and shift gears. I have suggested to you that this discipleship roadmap is evident in Amoris Laetitia and given you a simple description of what it is. Now, to many people, cool as it may seem, the whole framework seems new. That is to say, it makes internal sense. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. And, and it makes pastoral sense. Yeah, I could see how that would work. But people are still not sure, where is this coming from? Hogan, you may not be making this up, but is Pope Francis making this up? And they'll think either that it's brilliant or that it's dangerous. But my contention is that he's not making it up. It's deeply rooted in the tradition of the church. We just haven't paid attention to it or thought deeply about it. And the time has come when we have to do so. In fact, as I said, if you look at Casti Canubii and Familiaris Consortio, methodologically, you will see the elements of this method 
gradually taking shape. So let me explain where it comes from and how deeply rooted in the tradition it is, which I think will also show us how we can get better at using it and why we should. First, of course, we look to Jesus for our pastoral method. I want us to consider three episodes that set the pattern for the discipleship roadmap. We will begin with John 8. Here's a famous passage. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and made her stand in the middle. They said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So, what do you say? They figure they've got Jesus caught, right? What does he do? They figure they've got him either way. Because if he says, well, go ahead and stone her, he, they know that that's not his M.O. But if he says, well, you can't stone her, he will have contradicted the law of Moses. Either way, they've got him. Well, what does Jesus do? Jesus does these things. One, he protects the woman from harm. Yeah, she's committed a sin. That's not the first point on his mind. They're about to kill her. The first point on his mind is she needs protection. And I will provide it. Second, he doesn't condemn her. Remember how the story unfolds. Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And they go away, beginning with the elders. Why beginning with the elders? Because the older you get, the better you know your sins. When I was 25, I thought I would be perfect pretty soon. The older I get, the further away from perfection I seem to be. Yeah, the old, the elders went away first. And then Jesus says to her, where are they? Has no one condemned you? There's a long pause. Because basically the woman is looking up and saying, well, none of them has. But I know that you are without sin and you haven't spoken yet. So if you throw the first stone, they may throw after. And Jesus knows this, so the next thing he says is, neither do I condemn you. Although I have the right to do so, that's not what I'm here for. But that's not where it ends. He looks at her and he says, go and sin no more. You know that this was a sin. I know that this was a sin. I want better for you than this. This is not God's plan for you. And I think you probably want better than this for yourself. You know in your heart of hearts that this is not the fullness of your dignity. Go and sin no more. Let's look at Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. Now that very day, two of them were going to a village seven miles from Jerusalem called Emmaus. And they were conversing about all the things that had occurred. 
And it happened that while they were conversing and debating, Jesus himself drew near and walked with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? They stopped, looking downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, said to him in reply, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know of the things that have taken place there in these days? And he replied to them, What sort of things? What does Jesus do with these guys? Let's break it down step by step. One, he walks with them. That's it. He just walks with them. He shows up and he walks with them even though they don't know it's him. Two, he asks them, hey, what are you guys talking about? What's going on in your lives? Third, he listens to them. They just unpack their story. They unfold their hearts to him. And fourth, he challenges them. After they tell their story, he says, Oh, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets spoke. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and so enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things that referred to him in all the scriptures. He challenged their understanding of their own experience and provided a better understanding. He had the boldness to say, listen, I don't think you understand your own experience correctly. Let me give you another way to understand this. And I remember doing that with somebody once. She said to me, I'm thinking of getting involved in this ministry, but every time I think about it, I get nervous. And so I think it's probably not for me. And I said, I hear you. That's a high calling, that ministry. But let me provide what might be a different understanding of your experience. Because every time I go up to lecture, I still get nervous. It's not that I'm afraid to speak publicly. I speak publicly all the time. But I've come to understand that when I'm a little bit nervous... All of my senses are more active and I pay greater attention and bring greater energy to what I have to do. So maybe it's the Holy Spirit coming upon me to prepare me even physically to undertake this ministry on his behalf. And maybe that's happening to you. And the tears came to her eyes. And her heart came to peace. And she understood that in fact the Holy Spirit was calling her to that ministry. And the nervousness was a sign of it in that case. I didn't just rest content with, well, that's your understanding of your experience, so that's sacrosanct. No, maybe there's a better way to understand that experience. Let's look at the rich young man in Mark 10. Again, asking the question, what does Jesus do here? As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered him, 
Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. He replied and said to him, Teacher, all of these I have observed from my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You are lacking in one thing. Go, sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. What does Jesus do with him? He meets him where he is. He affirms the good that he's doing. He challenges him to take the next step in his discipleship and he's willing to let him walk away and decide for himself. In every case, Jesus meets the person where they are. He knows where he wants them to be. And he offers them the next step on their path to the fullness of his desires for them. He meets them in their situation. He knows the goal that he wants for them and in their heart of hearts they want for themselves. And he knows the next step on the path toward the goal. And he proposes it to them. So the discipleship roadmap is rooted in the example of Jesus and proper use of the discipleship roadmap is governed by the example of Jesus. So these are the questions I want you to ponder as we take our first break. What parts of the discipleship roadmap make sense to you? What parts of the discipleship roadmap still need to be clarified? How do you see the discipleship roadmap method in Pope Francis's pontificate? And with that, we'll take a break until we're ready to start again. Sister Mary Kathleen has some. <laughs> 